You're listening to For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm Ramey Nation, university registrar and advisor to the president for accreditation at Baker University, and this is Considerations When an Institution Closes. Welcome to the latest edition of For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm your host, Doug McKenna, university registrar at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm very, very sorry that there's been such a gap in time between the last episode and this episode. I have no idea where September went. I was telling my staff that September was like an introvert at a holiday party. They showed up, so you know they were there, but then they just disappeared. Totally Irish goodbye out of there. You know, my grandma used to say, Charlie, my boy, that's what she used to call me. And no, you don't get to call me that. She'd say, Charlie, my boy, the years just keep getting faster and faster. And it's true. And I have a theory about why that is. When you're born, you have no concept of time, which is good. You really have no concept of anything. By the time you're a year old, you've lived 365 days. That's how years work. I know. Stick with me. Okay. Each day in your first year is one 365th of your life. But by the time you're 10 years old, every day is one 3,650th of your life. And things just keep getting faster the longer you're alive. Every day, taken in isolation is less and less a percentage of your overall life. It's true about today, and it'll be even more true about tomorrow. And that ties into the idea of memento mori. Remember that you must die. This reflection or meditation on our own mortality is a good way to remind us to do things now. Don't put off until tomorrow. Marcus Aurelius said, you can leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. Anyway, all of that is to say, sorry I didn't publish a podcast for you last month. But this concept of impermanence is a good segue into today's topic of what happens when an institution closes. The last several years have been rough for higher education, and some of the budgetary woes and the reduction in state funding coupled with a demographic shift and a shrinking pool of high school graduates has strained institutions to the breaking point. Higher Ed Dive details roughly 70 institutions that have merged or closed since 2016 in a trend that was accelerating even before the pandemic hit, and that excludes for-profit institutions. ACRO's report on closing an institution will be linked on the show notes page for your reference. Take a look. While 70 of the thousands of institutions in higher ed in the United States may not seem like much, it's definitely significant for the students who attend those institutions and the administrators who work at those institutions. And we're going to hear from one of them today. Ramey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking some time to talk to us today about 
institutions and what happens when they close. And this is not necessarily the happiest of topics. And so I appreciate you sharing your experience with this. Um, before we dive into those challenging questions, give us a little intro of you, where you work now, what you do, those types of things. Sure. So um, a little bit of background about me. I have an undergrad in vocal performance, and I was one of those lucky few who got to be a student worker in an admissions office where I got my only work experience outside of performing and directing and loved it. When I graduated, I was lucky enough to find a, to really kind of stumble into a job at a university that I didn't really know if I wanted, but I really enjoyed it. And from there, um, I transitioned into a position in student services and then ultimately into the registrar's office where I found my ultimate calling. And I've been a registrar now for about 10 years, worked 15 in higher education, but I'm fairly new to Baker University where I am now. Um, I serve as the university registrar here and recently um, as the advisor to the president for accreditation. So Baker University is a private liberal arts school in Kansas. We're about 2,500 students and we have three different locations, um, a College of Arts and Sciences and an undergraduate school of education in Baldwin City, Kansas, which is about 30 minutes outside of Kansas City a School of Professional and Graduate Studies and Graduate School of Education in Overland Park, so in the Kansas City area, and then a School of Nursing in Topeka, Kansas. Right on. I used to live in Leavenworth, Kansas. Fort really? Leavenworth, Kansas. Not, oh. not like Leavenworth, Leavenworth, because there's just five prisons there. Yeah, my dad was stationed there. I did. I was in eighth and ninth grade. I attended General George S. Patton Jr. Junior High School. Junior, junior. It's okay. General George S. Patton Jr., and there's a junior high school. So, <laughs> but it cracks me up to always say junior, junior high school. It's dumb. All right. So, cast your memory back and let's talk about where you were when you found out that your institution was closing. Set the scene for us. What was your official position? And how were you notified? What was the timeline involved? And, and we'll go from there. Sure. So, First, I should probably say that the university closed due to financial issues, which I think is the reason that most institutions close if they do. Um, and we all we all knew for a long time that we weren't doing great financially. We just didn't understand. How, I think because it had been for so long, we didn't foresee an actual, an actual closure happening. So I was the university registrar at St. Gregory's University in Shawnee, Oklahoma, which is right outside of Oklahoma City. And the president had called a board of trustees meeting that day, which we all kind of knew was happening, but we didn't know why. I mean, typically there's not just randomly the full board of trustees shows up on campus. Right. And in a small institution, you find that out quickly. So um, the board met that morning and then we were all, we all received these emails from human resources around noon that said we were all needing to meet um, that afternoon in different locations. So at the time, we all thought we were meeting at the same place and we were getting a general university announcement. And to come to find out, there were actually three separate groups. So the students got this email at the same time. There was one group of students that met. 
a group of, and then two different groups of employees. And one group had all of the faculty in it and some staff. And the other group was pretty much all staff. So at first we were really confused about why the staff would be split up. I assumed my whole registrar's office would come to the same meeting spot, but in these emails we were told where to go. So that was interesting. It was early November and that day we were all told at exactly the same time that the university was closing at the end of the fall semester. So it's early November, that's a month and a half out, or really more like a month out until this semester was over. Of course, you know, there are lots of other things that happen after the semester is over before the right. Christmas break. Um, so those groups, obviously, the, you know, the students were told one way. Um, and then the two different groups we found out later, one was a group of individuals who were told you'll be finishing out the end of the semester. And I was in that group with the faculty members and my assistant registrar. And the second group that was all staff members were all given a two-week notice that day. Wow. So the student meeting lasted a little bit longer than the other meetings, but they did all happen at the same exact time. So everyone on campus was notified at the same time that we would be you know, losing our jobs, having these huge changes coming up. With this being, let's see, this was fall of 2017. So with it being that long ago, I kind of, I didn't expect the flood of emotions that would come back and just kind of rehashing and thinking about this. Yeah. But there were so many pieces and especially, I, I understand now maybe why, because we were such a small institution, why they decided to tell everyone at the same time, you know, that rumor mill, I think is what they were trying to avoid that, okay, if we tell faculty and staff, then the students are going to find out very quickly. So I think the it was the pull off the band-aid philosophy, just tell everyone at once to get it all over with. Right. Um, but each group didn't know necessarily what the other groups were told. So as we left, um, my assistant registrar and I came back to the office to find, um, we had two other employees in the office who were given their two weeks notice and we didn't know so right. they told us then that they had been given their two-week notice just to kind of bring in that more human aspect one was a single mother of two and the other was someone who was just out of college who was supporting herself so it was a very emotional time for the two of them and with students have just just have been to being told as well at the same time um you know, you think about what goes on in a student's mind if they know their institution is closing. What are they going to do? Where are they going to go? Well, immediately the first thing the students thought was, I'm going to need to transfer. I'm going to need to go get a transcript. Yeah. So we're sitting in the registrar's office. They're, you know, in tears and very upset. We're, we're all, you know, kind of trying to just digest the information. And all of a sudden, a flood of students just hits the registrar's office. Um, we didn't anticipate that they were all going to come. We had no idea what to do. You know, we're like pulling out the transcript request forms, like, okay, well, we might need to print some more of these. <laughs> Send them to the website to request them electronically. A little heads up would have been helpful. Yes. I mean, and, and immediately I was like, why did no one tell us? But looking back, I, I do kind of understand the whole rumor piece, but still definitely was not prepared for that. 
And it was kind of an on-the-fly decision. Like, So at that point, we charged for transcripts. And as the students walk in and they're all in tears, I'm like, like, uh, are we going to tell these students they have to piss for these transcripts? These are for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I immediately just walked straight down to the CFO's office and I said, I need either you to come with me and tell the students that they need to pay for these transcripts or I need your permission to waive this fee. He was like, waive the fee. (laughs) So we walked back and just started telling students, you know, you can request these transcripts. Um, We'll be happy to help you with whatever we can. But then we also said, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. And we did try to kind of explain, you know, I, the students were very frustrated. And, and like I said, the people at my front desk are crying. So I was trying to explain, you know, we got this information at the same time you did. We're right here in the same boat with you. And you know, we're all going to deal with these things together. So we're not sure how we're moving forward, but we will figure it out and we will do it with you, Yeah, uh, which I think is all you can do at that point. Right. And those moments for sure. And that's one of those things where just being able to be present and be a human being with other human beings is really important. And it's a really, you know, understated part of our job because so much of what we talk about as being a registrar systems or, you know, records or privacy or things like that. But all of that is related to an actual human being. And so like it, it is a, a real gift and an, an opportunity to share in that humanity. It's not the best situation, but it, I'm sure that your kindness there had an effect on those students. And so bang up job. Thanks. Yeah. And- and did ultimately to bond, I mean, as much as I would never want to go through that again, bond me with even those other employees right there yeah. in the office and some of the students. So some of them, the institution I went to, and even now, occasionally I'll see a student attending an institution I'm at now who was there before. And they're like, oh my gosh, do you remember this and this and this? And this. <laughs> it's such a different experience because we all went through that together and just a different um bond that I have not shared with other students. And honestly, I hope to never share with an additional group of students again. (laughs) Amen. So past those first, I'm assuming that that pattern sort of continued for a couple of days as like a flood of people tried to get their transcripts, had questions about how to transfer their information or um, request to transfer. Talk me through like what happened in the office over the next couple of weeks? What was the ebb and flow of activity? So um, very different than than other times. We really encouraged each other a lot about um, applying for different positions and talked about what kind of interviews we had coming up, um, what other institutions we were looking at, what other places we were looking at, wrote letters of of recommendation for all my staff. And then, of course, balancing that with what do we need to do to close this institution? You know, what are all of these pieces? And there was no guide at that point on what we do. So we were kind of just, you know, guessing, trying our best. And, you know, of course, the biggest thing was what other institution will take our records. Right. And we did thankfully have an institution just right down the street um, that agreed to take those. 
And interestingly enough, we were a Catholic institution and they were a Baptist institution. So it was kind of like the Baptist versus the Catholics all the time. Um, Yeah, so it was funny that, that our records went there. Actually, the first time we met together for at private institutions, I'm sure public institutions don't do this, but at private institutions, a lot of times we'll start meetings off in prayer. Sure. And um, especially on the Catholic side, they always do the Lord's Prayer to start to start meetings typically. Yeah. So if you have been to a Catholic church versus a Baptist church, you know, that there's this part about three quarters in where Baptists keep going and Catholics stop. Um, <laughs> So we're all sitting around this table. I grew up Baptist. So I know this is going to happen once it starts. But I'm sitting there from the Catholic institution. And we get to about that part. And I look up to like see what everyone else is going to do. And the Catholics stop. The Baptists keep going. And they're like, they're second guessing themselves. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. Just these funny little pieces that come of... Strange things I hope to never relive. (laughs) (laughs) This is great. When you were coordinating with the other institution on the records that you were going to transition, were you doing inventories? Were they doing inventories? How did the transfer actually take place? I don't know how long St. Gregory's been in business, but as I think about institutions where I've worked, Michigan State comes to mind and we literally have a vault in the basement of the administration building with all of the records, the paper little files back to, I don't know, 18 something, 50 something. Um, I should probably look that up. (laughs) Let's say that there are files in the vault at Michigan State back to 1850. Let's do that. Calling it right now. Don't write me. I I will figure it out. I'll look it up. And then, so I was involved in, I was at the registrar's office at GW when the Corcoran closed, this art school. And so we were receiving their records, doing, you know, quick admits of students and things like that, and trying to bring people in and get them registered for things. But most of that was digital. And so my question really is about like, were there physical records that had to be transported? Who was responsible for that? How did that work? Yeah. So um, St. Gregory's had been open for a little more than 100 years. We had celebrated our centennial a few years prior to the closing. And we did have a ton of hard copy records. Thankfully, in my first year as registrar, they brought me into my office and they were like, here's your office. Oh, and here are these quote unquote fireproof um, cabinets that house like 50 years of hard copy records. And these are the only copies we have. So you're welcome. (laughs) Okay. My very first job as registrar is that we have to digitize those. This must be the first project. And I'm so thankful that we did because we had brought in a company. So everything that we had that was in hard copy, we did have an image of it at least. Fantastic. So shameless plug for any of those companies out there to help you digitize your records, use them. Yes. Um, So everything was pretty much digital, but we did have to pull out. So those records were on um, an external storage drive and we did have to pull everything out of our student information system. So the things that you don't really think about are, okay, our SIS, 
is obviously not going to be the same. Well, or maybe it will be. Maybe you'll be lucky enough that it will be the same. But in this case, it wasn't the same as the institution accepting our records. And the only thing they wanted were final transcripts. I mean, they just couldn't take on anything additional. So we, the records that had already been completed, those were easy enough to only give them the final transcript. Everything out of our SIS, though, we wanted to wait until the very last day because we knew we'd be processing up until that day to pull it out. So on the last day, I pulled out all of our final transcripts, just ran a huge report out of the system that ran every final transcript and put it on these external drives as well. And I drove them over to Oklahoma Baptist University and handed them off to the registrar with the tiny bit of remaining transcript paper that I had. Which actually leads me to another piece that we should probably discuss is that when all of these students flood your office needing transcripts, how many institutions right then and there have enough transcript paper if these students want hard copy transcripts to provide a transcript for or multiple transcripts for every student at your institution? Right. I I highly doubt that most places keep that much transcript paper on hand. Not anymore. There were times when we would have boxes and boxes and boxes of it, and we just don't anymore because both we outsource the production of transcripts largely. Um, We still reserve the right to produce them in-house. But second, transcript paper is expensive, and it's a security risk to have like a whole bunch of it around in case you lose a box and you have to change all the security things on your paper. Yeah. So, So, no. And so we did use, um, we used the National Student Clearinghouse for transcripts, but at that time we didn't have it set up to where they were pulling from our student information system. You know, we were uploading those documents. Yeah. So that was only going to last as long as we could upload them. And even then the students would be charged a small fee, even if we reduced our fee all the way down. And at that point, the students were in such, all of us were in such a, difficult emotional state that it was hard for a student to swallow that they would have to pay any kind of fee for this transcript. Yeah. So that's totally understandable. Yeah. And we did give them that option. Um, But after like day one, I immediately took inventory of how much transcript paper we had. And I told all of the students, you may have one official transcript. So Make it count. Like, <laughs> um, like that scene in It's a Wonderful Life when George was like, how much money do you need till Thursday? I need yeah. $7. <laughs> Here you go. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's really all you can do. Like, that's, that's all we have. So this is what we'll give you. And then I also wrote um, a letter on letterhead that we start, you know, students who said they needed more than that. We told them, we'll print you your transcript or we'll, we'll email it to you. Yeah. Um, but we'll, we'll print it on white paper. We'll, we're happy to seal some and put this letter in that says this institution is closing. Please accept this as an official transcript. And once the next university has our records, they'll be able to eventually get a transcript for you. Yeah. But knowing that we were dropping off these records to them on like the last day before winter break, we knew there would be some lag time there. You know, and they had to figure out, of course, you know, how are they going to accept these requests? What are they going to do with them? How are they going to print these transcripts? How are they going to send them out? So um, I wanted to at least make sure the students could make it through that semester break to whatever institution they were going to if they were transferring out. 
during those last couple of weeks, part of your staff left and you were left with a reduced staff. And then at the very, very end, were you responsible for literally shutting down your office? What did that look like? Yeah. So the, on the very last day was the day that I delivered the records down the street and then came back and there were five of us left on the last day. And yeah, literally walked out of the registrar's office, locked it for the last time and took my key to HR. And that was it. That's brutal. Yeah. Locking the registrar's office and walking away, knowing it's never reopening again is, it's just crazy. You've said it before. You hope that you don't experience it again. I hope that for you and for me and for all of the listeners. Yes. I hope you never have to experience this and you never learn firsthand about this. Yeah. Are there any parts of the overall experience that you have revisited and either learned from, drawn inspiration from, or found yourself super mad about? So one thing that I've taken now to the next institution is that degree progress audits, especially if they're done in the registrar's office, must be up to date always. (laughs) Um, You know, it's really easy for faculty members to say, oh, I'm going to sub this class and you'll get the substitution in your senior year and it'll be fine. So at that point, one of my main jobs became doing all of these degree progress audits myself and with my assistant registrar, the two of us, because many students, so I I should say, we tried to graduate as many students as we could, but it was December. So our seniors still had a full semester to go. The faculty were amazing. And most of them, if not all of them, volunteered to do internships or independent studies without pay. And we didn't charge students at that point for any additional credit hours that they added. So we allowed students to add, I mean, uncharacteristically, clearly, a a month before the semester ends, you don't typically ever allow a student to add an independent study. Right. But in this case, we did. If they were within... 12 credit hours of being able to graduate at the end of the semester. So we allowed them to add, like I said, internships and independent studies. We also encouraged a high number of CLEP or Dante's exams if those could meet the um, the remaining, remaining degree requirements they had. We So our catalog already said that we accepted ACE recommendations for outside exams. Okay. We hadn't evaluated, yeah, we hadn't evaluated other outside exams outside of CLEP and DSST or Dante's at that point, though. And so there were a couple of others that had popped up, and I won't name names, but one of them in particular, students kind of flocked to, and we noticed an incredibly high pass rate, like almost 100%. So now, looking back, I don't know, I'm torn because... On the one hand, those seniors, we wanted to do everything we could to help them graduate. And it followed our policy, technically. Right. On the other hand, I have a huge concern now about the validity of some of those. So that's definitely something I use now in my role. But I I don't think I'd change the way we did it then. And we were able to graduate a good majority of the students 
we have a good majority of the seniors. Right. Let's be clear. Probably should specify that. And we actually held a December ceremony, which we hadn't before. And we had a donor who bought robes for all of the students. That's lovely. So, yeah. So they were still able to have that graduation ceremony if they could finish. Um, but any of the other students who needed to transfer out. So something I hadn't really thought of was, you know, your website doesn't stay running if your servers go down. So we put as many of the catalogs on the website that we could. And then we had those moved over being affiliated with the Catholic church. There was a, another website that was kind of affiliated with the institution that we were able to move our catalogs on. So that was at least helpful for students who were going to other institutions. Mm -hmm. We did have to designate a teach out institution for every program and those institutions we worked with individually, of course, to design kind of that, um, how does a student move at whatever point they are in the program to this other institution to complete. But not every student went to a designated teach-out institution. So for those, we knew they'd need the catalog, or in many cases, they'd need to bring their degree progress audit. Right. And thankfully, all of those institutions were really... They were really open about reaching out, about asking questions of us, and about accepting these audits. If they came right, they were they were pulled right out of our student information system. So once those were updated, they would typically accept those, specifically the teach out institutions would accept those and then allow the students to only have to complete the remaining requirements that were listed on that DPA. But I, I do have to say there was a lot of manual work that my assistant registrar and I did to get those to a place where the students wouldn't have to repeat coursework. That's astounding. I had not even considered that as something that would need to happen. But now that you say it, it's like, oh yeah, that's obvious. That yeah. Now, of course, of course. If, yeah, of course, if every student and advisor followed the exact plan that was listed in the catalog, then that would not be necessary. So if you are one of those lucky few institutions where that happens, then yeah, that's that's hilarious. <laughs> we do 14,000 substitutions and waivers every year. Wow. It's ridiculous. And that's like we've cut it down because it was the Wild West. And at some point, you're doing so many substitutions and waivers that the published curriculum rules come into question. And so you're like, well, we need to do a better job wrangling these. Agreed. So if you're at the point where you need to wrangle it in, you point back to this podcast and use this as your example. That's right. You're like, look, <laughs> this is a thing. You got to do this. Yeah. That's good stuff. Remy, anything else to share? This has been wonderful. I appreciate you sharing all of this. I'm sorry that it was more emotional and more challenging than you thought it might be, but that's probably cathartic. Let's chalk it up yeah. to yeah, some. Yeah. And I will say, occasionally when I have a job opening in one of my offices, I text out to a couple of people who I worked with at St. Gregory's. I'm like, just in case you're willing to move, <laughs> I'd love to have you here. So That's awesome. It's, it's still kind of a little family. That's so great. As students were requesting their transcripts and you were and working with other institutions on teach-out plans and things, what kinds of efforts did you provide for the students or what kind of services did you provide for the students as part of the wind down for the institution? So we did have a lot of other institutions that reached out to us and said, hey, how can we help? Are there things that your students need to know? Are there programs they're looking at? And because of 
getting because we got all that outreach individually we decided to host a transfer fair for any institution who wanted to participate and i i want to say we had over a hundred institutions there wow. represented in the gym which is crazy when you consider that this is our our whole university was about 750 students so we were fairly small but i think mostly it was in support of the institution closing which was great and in support of our students so they were able to go around and talk to a hundred different universities and colleges right there to get more information about programs and transfer out options um, and places were really helpful um, and really open to our students that's fantastic that is fantastic it's one of those things that you're like people are good yeah they are hanging in Remy, thanks for spending some time chatting it up about your experiences. I'm sorry that you had that experience, but I'm happy that you've shared the experience. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's, it's been good to chat. I'll reiterate, I hope that you're never in the situation of having to shut down your office and your institution. But if you are, know that there are a plethora of resources available to you from ACRO. Thanks to Ramey for sharing her experience. Her contact info is on the show notes page if you want to follow up with her with any questions. Looking ahead, I'm not planning on taking another month's long hiatus, so stay tuned for more episodes. And until then, wash your hands, drink more water, smash the patriarchy, and stretch your legs. I'm Doug McKenna, and this is For the Record.